Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Radio for a really great future. We're talking real money. Magically, we switch from KOMO AM 1000 over to KVI AM 570. Whoa. 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 <laughs> Oops. <laughs> well, that's Rick's up there. Yeah. He confuses me. Hello, everyone. I'm Don McDonald, and this is a really unusual, unique, special edition of talking real money i'm back from new zealand yes it was uh it was fun enjoyed it and tom is up there at the very front at retire me and this is our almost all of our experts getting together and answering questions about money and retirement and tom who do you have with you up there i don't know they wouldn't give me their names so i'm well can you blame them as i go along because you'd probably be calling them late at night and bugging them. Yeah. To, all, to my far left from Fairway Mortgage, Harlan Acola, and to my immediate left, Rick Gregrick from Gregrick & Associates. And way, as way. you can see, way <laughs> over to the right side is Paul Merriman, uh, formerly of Merriman and now of Merriman. Anyway, so your, he's your he's former boss. A former uh, boss. That's right. So uh, we are, by the way, this is the, the free-flowing part of the day where... Like our show on KVI normally yeah, that is. Yeah, because this is an hour. We can do whatever we could ask you about we New Zealand. We, we can, you know, make fun of me as a soccer referent. Whatever it is. Oh, the soccer story. Oh, yeah, we're going to do that Oh, one. yeah, we got to tell the soccer right, story. Yeah, go, go right ahead. No, the soccer story is great. Uh, you were refing a game, when was it? Friday? I think Thursday. Thursday, yeah. Thursday night. Tom, for those of you who don't know, Tom is a, uh, a soccer referee for kids' soccer. High school? High school. You're going to call them kids? Okay. I'm not going to. They're not grown-ups. They must be Young kids. Young adults. Young adults. All right. And uh, one of our advisors went to th- visit this game to watch him ref. I don't know why. By the way, which you've never done. Which I've never done. Paul's never done. No. So Rick's never done. No. Harlan's never done. No. So he's on no a very short list. No one comes to see you do this. It's right. refereeing. Refereeing is not why you watch a game, is it? Oh, let's go see the ref. So anyway, one of our advisors went to see the ref. And, Tom, you tell the rest of the story because it was great. Well, one of the coaches had to leave early. Let's just put it that way. No, my explain request. how the coach had to leave well, early. Well, I, I think he saw red. Yeah. Red okay. card. Yeah, see, now, is. how many people of you, how many out here know <laughs> exactly. soccer? No. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot like of 12. Hands. No, that's you got, 15. What, easy. He saw red. What does that mean? He received a red card for continuing dissent. How's that? Continuing dissent. He was yeah. yelling at you. Okay. You call away. You the like, story I'll was better it. before. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to leave it at that. And this all was right. all over in an annuity. Oh, uh, something like that. I think it was an <laughs> it was index annuity. An annuity. Thank you, Rick. That's very helpful. So here's the deal. I am going to run around like a crazy person for the next hour, which will help me sleep better tonight to uh, help improve my jet lag from New Zealand. So you'll we'll take be- the questions, but I got the first one for everybody on the panel. What is the most difficult decision you see people make as they get close to retirement, Harlan? Well, in our uh, our business, one of the most difficult things is emotionally trying to part with equity when they know what the facts are 
and they try to spend their more valuable money that you guys manage, and it is an incredible mental shift to spend equity. It's just weird. I mean, you're I, talking about home equity, home equity, yeah, yes. real estate equity. Yes, I want to right. make that clear. It's not not equities, not in the stock right. market. And it's just amazing. I had one lady that I went to a financial planner in Atlanta, and she walked into the uh, boardroom where we were meeting, and she looked at me and said, "I know why you're here. Keep your damn hands off my equity." <laughs> I mean, I, I was kind of emotional, and it's weird. I was going to make a commented I'm leaving it at that though. Uh, Rick Gregrick, Gregrick and Associates, who yes, it does have a show called Your Partner in Law on another station. Uh, how about you? What's what's because you work with a lot of people who you are pre retirement. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, I don't know if you can say it on KVI. <laughs> well, it's the other KVI. There you the go. Other KVI. And then, and then the other Como. There you go. They all start with K's. Um, well, from an attorney's perspective, and I've talked about this on my programs uh, ad nauseum to sometimes, and it's a disease or a condition that many of you have, and it's called planning paralysis. You know, just not, you know, knowing you need to do it. You all know you need to do an estate. Oh, but I don't want to. It's boring. It's miserable. And, and, and there's a million excuses. Okay, there's always a million excuses. But it's planning paralysis. And it's just overcoming that fear of doing it. Because I will tell you, for those who do it and go through our process and work with, you know, the folks that we work with, and we work with your other advisors as well, but there is a, a sense of relief when you get your plan done. I call it the wow factor. I can't tell you, you know, attorneys, you know, we're not like a lot of other professions. Most people don't, when we're done with services, hand us a 20% tip. <laughs> but... I get an awful lot. Not going to happen today, That's just in case you're looking at me for that. If you're waiting for that, you're going to keep waiting. And then I'm going to state this one. Appropriately, I get a lot of hugs from, right. you know, from some of my Tom. dear lady clients and you know, not all of them. Tom, you hug him after our I meetings? said some people. Okay. So, but really overcoming that and just, because once you get the process started, you find out it's not so bad. It's thinking about it is what's hard. And if we can help dispel the myths and all the things that you think are going on, and what we just want to do is talk about that. What, what do you know about wills? What do you know about trust? And then let's fill in the blanks on that. And I think it actually ends up being a pretty fun process for most people. It Did you just fun. say the word fun? Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> I saw all people right, in let's... the audience. I saw their eyes. It was like, coming to fun? the lawyer can be fun. Okay. You didn't know, uh, you didn't know that, did you? Let's ask Paul, because Paul has Paul's helped... Fun. Thousands of people. I mean, you used to do this one-on-one. -on -one. You're now doing it with the public in a lot of ways and getting a lot of questions from people because you're out at Market Watch. You got the podcast. You're still doing all the outreach. How about you? What's the toughest hurdle you think for folks? Well, I think a lot of folks who have been successful in the accumulation stage, and they were successful generally because they were willing to take risk and have a good position in equities, which has paid huge rewards uh, over many decades. And they have to make this transition from being an accumulator to being a in a distribution mode. It's a whole different kind of investing. It's very defensive. You've got to become more defensive and have the balance with the idea of protecting against the really bad times. When you're accumulating, actually the bad times can be helpful to the extent that you're building, you're getting, the, you're buying more shares at a lower price. At a lower price. Right. So I think for a lot of folks who have had a great success, 
they need to realize and they've got to transition over to a much different kind of investing. And that's not what they're comfortable with. They, they're players of a sort. And Don, your retirement's coming up soon. So what, what's going to be the biggest <laughs> hurdle for you? Am I that old? I, I didn't want to announce it publicly today, but yeah. Don did has you, announced. Did you have some plans oh, no, he has, for me? Okay. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm, not, I'm never retiring, so it's no hurdle at all. I'd be bored to tears. I'm sorry. I, I think retirement is great for a lot of people. But if I retired, I don't know what I would do because, uh, you know, I, the only hobby I have is this. Th this is my hobby. Sorry. Is that a bad answer? Do you guys have any questions for everybody? Oh, I knew you would. We're going to start right here in the front. Then I don't have to go very far. And by the way, this is a funny, funny story. You want to hear a funny story? This woman right here. I have not seen this woman since 1974. She and I went to high school together. I, I, she, I'm a year ahead of her. I think, I mean, two years ahead. More of her. like yeah. five. Two actually, years ahead done, of her. Yeah. But we, we went to the she same high school. She knows my sibs, and uh, it was really kind of. It was very cool to, to run into her after all these years at, of all things, a retirement. Anyway, go ahead. Thank you. I have a question for Harlan about the reverse mortgages. Um, if I was in a financial crisis and took out a reverse mortgage and then two years from now my financial circumstances changed, can I end the reverse mortgage then or do I have to wait until I either sell the house or I die? Well, the interesting thing is, is you set it up in a line of credit so you can pay your reverse mortgage down whenever you want because it's a payment optional mortgage. So if you pulled out two, three, four hundred thousand and then you got a windfall or you got a, uh, some sort of a, um, uh, perhaps a, uh, inheritance and you wanted to pay it down and get some tax benefits, you could pay it down. You would always want to talk to your financial advisors as to whether or not it made sense to pay it down or put it somewhere else. But you can pay it off or down whenever you want. Because when you get married, it's till death do us part. Uh, on a reverse mortgage, it's till death do us part as far as we are concerned as a lender. We must promise that we never call it until after you're dead or when you move out of the house. But you can call it whenever you want. It's a one-sided agreement. So you can end the reverse mortgage whenever you want. You probably won't. You just leave the line of credit intact that you could go always go back to. Because you're not paying you anything to. for that. Yeah, there's no monthly fee, no nothing. You just leave it sit there and let it uh, whenever that money is available. Because one thing I didn't get a chance to talk about earlier, the reverse mortgage line of credit always goes up. So if you start with a $300,000 line of credit, next year it's $315,000. It goes up by 5%. So to have money available and buy the umbrella when it's not raining is an incredible advantage that the money's there if you need it. If you don't want it, great. Next question. Keep going right down the road. Right there. That was easy. Right there. Yeah, that's where I'm going because it's easy to get the money. That's as far as you can probably go anyway. Yeah. And I just got her password for her iPhone, too. Her's going to be very disappointed in you. Okay, my question, I think, is to Rick. I love your show, by the way. Our show? or I thought you were saying she loves Rick's show. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lawyers are scary. You know, I will say that. So. To, to make that jump and, and get ahead of the game and, and start thinking about that, what is the most common bit of information a prospective client omits or forgets to tell an advisor, such as? Well, for the attorney, one of the things that's really challenging, I mean, we're going to go over your finances, so you know that shouldn't be too terrible, although some people are shy about their finances. 
but we do need to uh, you know, understand what you have because that's going to dictate how we would plan for them. I think one of the most difficult situations or conversations we have is uh, over your fiduciaries. Who's going to be your uh, executors, your personal representatives, your agents, your trustees? Um, and, and taking a, a, really, a realistic look at your children or the other caregivers that you're going to be relying on. That's a really a tough one because no matter how good a job I might do in creating a will or a power of attorney for you, if you've put the wrong person in charge, it's a problem. And if we look at senior abuse, exploitation of seniors, and especially financial exploitation, 65 plus percent of all exploitations here in Washington, here in Everett and Kirkland and Seattle and all across the country, it comes at the hands of close family members, spouses and children at the top of the very, the very top of the list, and yet that's the people we oftentimes look to to manage our finances during disability. So we have to have an honest discussion about that. I'm going to add something to that. I mean, the, the thing that we see in, on our side, by the way, because I think it's a great question. Um, for example, when we do the blueprint or somebody becomes a client, typically many of you have a lot of accounts. You have an old 401k you left behind 15 years ago. You got that IRA you opened up at Ameriprise because a guy told you about the fund you had to own. You've got a Roth IRA. And we had a case recently where somebody came in and they had accounts that they had forgotten about. <laughs> they had an old 401k. I think she had a 403b. So one of the things that we recommend, I recommend is if possible, you should have one retirement account, one pre-tax, one IRA type account and one taxable account because we, I have no idea how, we had somebody open accounts recently who had 19 accounts. I have no idea how you keep track of it all. So I see a lot of scattered. And I also think this is something you've talked about in the past, Paul. People have a tendency to buy a strategy or in other words, an idea. Somebody comes along and says, Hey, it's 1999. You should buy technology or it's 2000. Bit, I was going to say, Hey, you stole my thunder. So I, I always mean, do because this is something you've talked about, Paul, that you see people who have ideas rather than having a strategy. thorough strategy. Yeah. It only um, works actually if you say something. You can elaborate, microphone. Paul. <laughs> strategy. Oh, thank you. That's good. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I think, I think that, that that is an interesting transition too, from getting people to focus from Leave the good ideas behind because typically good ideas come at the t peaks of markets, uh, unfortunately. And uh, so get those out of those good ideas and get them into strategies that are built forever. Yeah, if you <laughs> like Bitcoin at $19,000, you got to love it at nine. Yeah, right. <laughs> Questions? Whoa. Yes, ma'am. Is there such a document that when you go to do your will, should there be fighting amongst the siblings that whoever is the loudest gets disinherited? <laughs> well, in wills and trust and powers of attorney and things like that, we can draft in various uh, provisions that we might call no contest provisions. Certainly in a will, a common provision would be that if anyone who stands to benefit from, the, from this will um, brings an action, a legal action to set aside the will or something like that, that they be disinherited. Um, are those 100% effective? No, nothing's 100% effective in the law. But, you know, the better we write them or the b way we design your plan, that's one of the things we want to look at. What potential problems might you have? And that's why we have to, again, take a realistic look at our kids. They all don't get along as well as we think they might. And, or maybe they have different attitudes. Um, it's so disturbing to me when we see families that, and many of them I've known for years sometimes, and when the second dies, 
fighting that can erupt from the kids is overwhelming. And most of it's because there's been a lack of transparency on their planning. You know, maybe one kid's been in charge, they haven't kept the other ones informed, and this lack of information always creates uh, suspicion. Suspicion leads to, you know, all kinds of bad things. And so, you know, we, we try to build in the proper type of transparency, the proper checks and balances, maybe having co-fiduciaries, so it takes two to dance rather than just one. Uh, maybe building into our plan, uh, say, a trust protector or a trust advisor position that would be another professional that could always step in in a situation if it started to have, you know, what I call family feud such that we can shortchange that because the worst thing in the world is to have family feud. You're either disabled or dead and then everybody's wasting your money that you yeah. saved your whole life for. We do see that, yeah. I mean, now I appreciate that as yeah. a lawyer, everybody fighting because we make a lot more money if you can't get along. If people aren't getting along yeah, right. than we do for planning. We make a lot more money on litigation. I mean, it's not even a close call. You're listening to a special edition of Talking Real Money on KVI. We're live from Retire Meet North, our first ever retire meet on the north end of town in Everett, Washington, with our panel of experts from today's retire meet, Paul Merriman, Tom Cock, Rick Gregorick, and Harlan Akala. And we have another question from the audience. Please. Yes, I'm a, a retired senior who has no primary family left. I've chosen a, a close friend of mine who's in my age group. She has all the skills, the time, the honesty, but I believe that she's starting to lose her memory. Is there such a thing as multiple powers of attorney like decision by committee? The answer is yes, you could have multiple agents. Now, I'd never like you to have multiple powers of attorney, in other words, the documents. Mm -hmm. I've seen some attorneys write six powers of attorney and have one individual, different individual sign all six. Please never do that. That is just crazy. But a power of attorney with A, B, or A, B, and C on it, and then we want to build into that power of attorney. If there's more than one, how is the decision going to be made? Is it by majority? Is it by unanimous? What happens if I have two and they can't come to a decision. We better have a tie-breaking thing in there. But for all powers of attorney, all wills, all trust, all of these documents, you want a primary actor, primary agent, and then we want successor agents, backups to those. One of the things that we oftentimes look at as we do age, having fiduciaries that are approximately our age isn't necessarily a very good bet because they could fall prey to their health or other issues just like you could. So sometimes making sure that we have someone younger or a backup or a committee that might be established in your plan that says if there's ever a vacancy, you want this committee to choose an appropriate fiduciary for you. So there's lots of different options. And ma'am, we have so many situations where people don't have a large family tree whether they've been single their whole life or married or widowed or whatever, a lot of folks don't have a big built-in group of family-type people, and so we're looking for friends or distant relatives or possibly even bringing in professionals, and then that brings in a whole host of other opportunities. Now, now you mentioned a tiebreaker for if you only have two people on there. Can you, can, is it legal to use rock, paper, scissors? or? You know what? If that's what it takes, you can say we're going to cut cards. I don't know. Okay. But usually we're thinking about bringing in a disinterested third party. Maybe. Yeah, but rock, paper, scissors is cheaper. It is. It is, absolutely. Right. I'm moving to the very back of the yes, room you now. Are. I am going way back here, way back. So this is taking off from uh, the questions from the Paul Merriman's 25 things you should be getting from your financial advisor. 
Can you just expand on when you first meet a financial advisor, uh, what should you be looking for? What are the questions to ask? Well, that, that article. Yellow tie? Right. Okay. Blue suit, yellow tie. Sorry, yes. that's good for you. Um, that's an article that I, that I wrote uh, that I, I hoped that's what, what you're supposed to get out of an investment advisor. In terms of what you need to know about an investment advisor, it, it's a long list. I do have a, another book, just if, if, you, if you wish, a free ebook entitled uh, Get Smart or Get Screwed. How to get the how to select the best and get the most. One of my of, favorite titles, by the I, way. <laughs> out of your your financial advisor, what you want. I mentioned earlier today about you're looking for ethics and and competence. And one of the challenges for investors is they don't understand the process in the first place. So how can they tell whether an advisor is ethical? and competent. So the first thing before you start asking questions, I think, is that you should become educated about what is, an, is appropriate for you to have as an investment. Even though you're looking to them for guidance, you need to know enough to know how to judge whether they are, in fact, ethical and competent. Well, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Harlan because he works with a lot of advisors. So, I mean, there's a lot of confusion right now because First, the Department of Labor had this new law about retirement accounts that said that you can only get fiduciary advice. Then it got rolled back, and now the SEC is rolling out. So it's it's mind blowing. I mean, you meet with a lot of people, so you're you're a little disinterested here. Tell our audience what you think people should look for in a financial advisor. I guess. Yeah, you know, I uh, I've never been an investment advisor. I'm not an attorney. But I have trained literally hundreds because I teach CE classes for CFPs and investment advisors. And it is amazing to me the number of people that trust advisors simply because they're a family friend or a, a friend oh. of another family friend or, or whatever. Or you know, a member of the same church. Uh, yeah, and it's just and, and any time, one of the best ways that you can test a financial advisor is say, my mom's got $100,000 to invest. Where do you think she should put it? And if they give you an answer, run. If you don't have a holistic planner like Vestry that looks at the whole picture, uh, you are in dangerous grounds because it's a product seller, not an investment advisor. And there's all kinds of people that say they're investment advisors, and all they do is they've got a hidden agenda of selling you a certain product. And it's no different in our business if we think the same answer to all the things is a reverse mortgage when there's forward mortgages and there's no mortgages and so on. You would not want to deal with us. You don't want to deal with any advisor that is not a true holistic advisor that looks at your entire picture. How many advisors have talked to you about your home equity? I would bet 90% of them have never said a word about your home equity and reverse mortgages, even though there's $6.5 there. And so it's amazing to me every time I go out there and work with advisors, the number of people that just get sucked into somebody selling the latest hot product that was on Money Magazine last month. By the way, it's going to be seven trillion as of Monday because of Seattle's rise. Uh, <laughs> Can I just piggyback a little please. bit on this question because I think this is really important, and it was mentioned earlier, I think, by. Tom, Paul, and Don, so I might as well ask too. If you're looking at a financial advisor, Tom was just talking about the new fiduciary rules that might deal with uh, retirement accounts, and that's on and off. The, a fiduciary, folks, is a person who owes you the highest duty of loyalty, care, and obedience, even if it's at the fiduciary's expense. 
attorneys, now I usually get some chuckles here, are kind of at the top of the fiduciary standard. Ours is absolute. Many other professions have different types of fiduciary relationships. But basically, most of the financial advisors in the United States, and Tom, correct me if my numbers are wrong, I think they're close, there's about 1.1 million licensed financial advisors in the United States. Of those, 11,000. Are always full required. Are yeah. full-time yeah. fiduciaries. Because there are a lot of people who claim to be fiduciaries. Because it's only part Or who are fiduciaries. And that's why I, I have developed the uh, in-your-best-interest hat and the merely suitable hat that I would like most stockbrokers to wear. When they say I'm a fiduciary, put the hat on when you're a fiduciary, then put on the merely suitable hat when you're selling stuff. So one of the really cool statistics, if we're looking at that 11,000 full-time fiduciaries, we got 19 or 20 of them at your office right now. Thousand? We got a pretty big. Oh, percentage. 19. Yes. Yeah. Okay, we do have a lot. So, yes. thank you. So for the attorney, it's very important for me if I'm referring you, I want to refer you when I can to people who are fiduciaries. Now, in some industries, there are no fiduciaries, like insurance. Insurance has one of the lowest professional standards of all products being sold. Real estate agents have higher standards. Financial advisors have higher standards. CPAs have higher standards. I think everyone. Insurance agents have this crazy thing that nobody Tow really knows drivers, what it is standards. called suitability, which is kind of if the product's legal, they can sell it to you. Right. I have a question here in the back of the room. Again, we're completing our back of the room tour. <laughs> Can you talk or do any of you have as part of your strategy or recommendations for strategy in long-term retirement planning real estate and utilizing that as part of your long-term strategy and building in passive income along with your stocks, bonds, and outside of your personal residence? I'm going to let's start with the right. I mean, real estate, this is an interesting topic because it comes up a lot. And surprisingly, it comes up a lot recently because, well, real estate prices are kind of up in Seattle. Uh, so a lot of people are going to get rich. How do you view real estate as part of a retirement portfolio? I guess that's what I'd ask. Well, I recommend REITs uh, inside of 401ks and IRAs. But when she's referring to passive I, I know, strategies. I know. Yeah. I mean, I want to differentiate yeah. between those two. Uh, but once you get into the business of renting, buying and renting, from my viewpoint, that's a business that you can be in. It's a great business to be in for some people. I would never want to be in that business because I'd have a hard time collecting money. Oh, another week is fine. So I think that I want it, him as it my depends okay. on how you are as a business person, whether you're likely to do a do well with that, but it is not a passive exercise. It's an active business that can be very profitable and consume your life. If you go online, you'll see that there, of all the investing podcasts, and I've done this, about 20 to 25% of them are pitching some passive real estate investing strategy. There is, in my book, no such thing. No such thing. When you're investing in individual pieces of real estate, it is either a business or it is foolish. Now, it, that said, if you want to have real estate as part of your portfolio, and as Paul said, we suggest you do, you have it in, in a massively diversified manner, which will reduce your cost dramatically, take the onus off of you. to. It's not passive if you're managing. 
It's just not passive. I want to I want to add to that, Don, yeah. um, uh, because I am in that business, as you know, not by choice. No, definitely not by choice. And I'd rather be in the pizza business. Rick, what about you? Well. Passive, when we're using the term active and passive, when they're talking about real estate, it's really about taxes, is whether it's a passive investment or True. an active investment. But what Paul says, if, if you're going to be a real estate investor, whether you're flipping homes or you're doing the buy and hold, buy and hold's the one that works there too, over the long haul, mm -hmm. the flipping's market timing. So if you want to draw an analogy there, creating passive income though in a real estate portfolio, certainly a lot of folks have done that. Where many folks I think make the biggest mistake is all in. You can't be all in real estate. You can't go down and spend the dirt of your real estate. So you need to have a balance and you had to have proper liquidity in that estate to do it. But as Paul said, if you're going to have that rental income, own that real estate or holding real estate for investment purposes, you must understand that it is a business. You might be a sole proprietor, bad idea. You might put it in an LLC or something like that. And again, that's something that needs to be looked at in your overall strategy. But really, is it any more different? Uh, is it any different than, than Tom's Wife running a pizza business. No, it's a business. It's a business. That's my whole it's, point. It is no, you can, you, you can you eat the pizza. You shouldn't look at it unless you want to be in business. Right. It's you know, a lot of people. I was just talking. I don't know who earlier, and you know when we had the the last big real estate run up before our great uh, recession here. All of the gurus were out, and we had all the boot camps and all the training and everything. They're back now. All through the recession, where did they go? They're all gone. It was you, we were talking about that. They're yeah, all gone. They go? Now that the market's kind of on fire mm -hmm. again, we're back. Now, folks, the people who make money in real estate are the same types of people who make it in the stock market. They're in it for the long haul. It's time value of money over time, that compounding rate of growth, your compounding interest. So it's a very similar strategy. The thing that bothers me is when people are all in. You, all in real estate is very risky on a lot of things, and real estate is just as risky as the stock market. Well, I want to point out one difference, and I want to let Harlan, I mean, the difference between being an investor in the stock market is that truly is passive. In other words, you put yeah. the money in, yeah. you don't have to get up in the morning and collect rent that you don't want to collect or fix whatever it is. When you're running a business that owns real estate, you have to be. I want to let Harlan, because he's involved in real estate too. Yeah, I've dealt with literally hundreds of clients that have been in the real estate business most of them don't realize it's a business, which we just heard. I ran into a couple that were in their 80s that had 30 properties, and they did not have enough money to uh, go out for a Friday night fish fry, which you do in Wisconsin almost every Friday night. They literally were incredibly poor, and they were spending most of their time trying to figure out how to fix properties, how to get collect rent from people. It was a mess, and they were in their 80s, and they couldn't retire. So if you look at it like a business, and you're going to use it as a plan, just like any other business, it can be a very profitable thing as long as it is not your main thing. And I see very few people that are in retirement that are still actively managing properties. So it's fine if you're 40 and 50. It's a little different deal if you're using it in and, retirement. And let me really quickly bring everyone down to earth on real estate because I want you to understand you live an aberration. Living in the Puget Sound region is an aberration in America. Hey, this is the guy who lives in celebration? Yeah, it's yeah. an aberration okay. too. Right. Yeah. Uh, our, the fact that our prices are up as much as they are, but yours are ridiculous. Let me give you, we should be paying attention to facts, right? 
We showed you the numbers on stocks and bonds and all of those things. Let me give you the number from Kay Schiller on real estate investing. The average annual return, and the more data you have, the better, the average annual return over the past 100 years for real estate in America has been nine-tenths of a percent over inflation. So 4% a year. 4% a year. That's not a great return. Next up, I'm going to this side of the room. <laughs> yeah, I have a question for Harlan about uh, the reverse mortgage. What's the difference between getting a reverse mortgage as a home equity and just a regular home equity? Well, that, that's a wonderful question. Everybody says, hey, I, reverse mortgages are more expensive than other mortgages, just like Mercedes are more expensive than uh, Impalas. The issue is uh, there's three problems with a regular home equity, and we do both uh, at our company, uh, and so I can be very impartial about it. I would never sell a regular uh, line of credit to a somebody over 62 that was eligible for a reverse. And the reason for it is is three bad things can happen. Number one, you have to make payments. And that's not even might happen. You got to make payments, so you're creating cash from equity. And as soon as you get the cash, you got to put the put it back into equity again. And the second thing is, is they can be called. My line of credit was canceled in 2009, Most all of them were. and it was gone, along with millions of other ones. Right when I could have used it and would have needed it, if I was retired, I would have been up the proverbial crick. And the third thing is, is not only they can be called, they can be escalated where you end up paying a whole lot more when the five-year or 10-year uh, repayment comes out. And so when you are for I had a client that had a $300,000 line of credit. His wife died who was a physician, and the bank called the loan and said they wanted their money back in 30 days. Mm -hmm. He was going to have to pull it out of his IRA and pay $100,000 in taxes. Fortunately, he knew about us, and he refinanced into a reverse line of credit, which can never be canceled, never requires a payment, and is guaranteed to be there for as long as you want to live in the house. It's apples and oranges. It's not even close. And it's uh, the, the forward, forward mortgages, I would argue that are out and out dangerous because you have to make a payment every 30 days, no matter what happens to your health, no matter what happens to your finances. And a lot of people will say, I've got a mortgage now, I'll just keep paying it. You can pay a reverse mortgage too. And that's one of the things I didn't mention during my talk is whether you have a small balance or a big balance, I will argue, and you can run through the software of Vestry to show whether or not it makes sense to continue paying cash into equity when you don't have to. Uh, basically, 99 times out of 100, it does not make sense to make payments when you don't have to. You've just been released from whether or not you have to make payments. And 40% of you over the age of 62 are still making mortgage payments, and you don't have to. But you believe that that makes the most sense because you want more equity when if you gave it to uh, and put it into your investment account with Vestry, you'd be way ahead. Harlan, um, when you have a, um, a reverse mortgage line of credit, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the only line of credit that annually grows? Right. That, that's Without appraisal even. Yes, you don't have to have an appraisal. It goes up 5% a year regardless of what happens to the value of your house. Which you is higher than Case Schiller. Uh, much higher than Case Schiller. <laughs> but amazing. Yeah, can you guarantee 5%? No, now? I cannot guarantee okay. 5% on okay. anything. Uh, another question. Yep, back here. i go to this side of the room for a bit. Um, so you're saying that getting into a property after 62, buying something is not necessarily a good investment because of payments you would be making and your line of credit could be called, which I don't know what that means. But what about those who have bigger homes, 
want to sell and go to, say, a condominium or something smaller, what, what do you recommend on that? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not saying that it's not a good idea. You have to live somewhere. Unless you're homeless and have a tent, you've got to live somewhere. And so, but what's the situation with downsizing? You're, you're 62 years old, 63 years old. You got a million dollar house that's 4,500 square feet, 5,000 square feet, and you want to go to a 1,500 square foot, 2,000 square foot condominium. Yeah, that's uh, most people don't realize that your biggest expense in retirement is not health care. It's not unless you're very rich. It's not taxes. Uh, your biggest expense in retirement is housing. If you can control your housing expense, you can control a whole bunch of things in retirement. Okay, well, give us give us an example of what she could do if you had all that equity and you wanted to get out of that and get into something smaller, for example. Right. So let's say that you have the million dollar house that Don just mentioned, and you still owe three hundred thousand on it. You sell that house, you've got seven hundred thousand. What most people do is take that 700000 and go buy a $700,000 condo. If you instead do a reverse mortgage, you'd only have to, at 62, you'd only have to put about four hundred down. You'd have $300,000 left to go into your investments and never have a payment for the rest of your life. A much more efficient use of your retirement money and never have to worry about making a payment even if the market went down. Now, Harlan, one, uh, what is the maximum, though, amount of a home the, the home's value that you, to which you can apply a, a reverse? 680000 in FHA, but we do jumbos up to $5 million. So And it's uh, how much of the, it's a 40% of the equity that can be drawn out, correct? Right, 40%. Okay. So if you're buying a house for $700, we are going to give you 300 You come in with the other 400 from your downsizing, and you have dramatically impacted not only your tax, real estate tax costs, but you've also eliminated that $300,000 payment for the rest of your life. And if your payment was $3,000, it's now zero. People get all excited about refinancing and taking it from 3000 to 2500 because the rates went down. 3000 to zero is much better. You're right. Zero is good. Go ahead. Other questions? I have a question. Do you, either of you, um, have your clients invest in, I thought that Paul had said REITs, which is Real Estate Investment Trust? We use REITs, yes. Uh, in, Actually, we uh, use REIT funds. REIT mutual funds. So Publicly um, traded. Publicly, publicly traded. REITs. traded. Yeah, yeah, these are not non-publicly non traded. Non-publicly traded yes. are horrible. Yeah. yeah, Juju, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, we do, and they you would only want to use those in a qualified type of account. You wouldn't want to use those in a taxable account because they're very tax inefficient. But, yes, REITs have been part of the portfolios that we've used for over 23 years. Yeah, for a long so. time. Question... Question. Saw a lot more hands. Looking. Oh, back here. Going to the back again. Yes, ma'am. I'd like your input on um, just uh, funds that are sector funds that are so popular. Yeah, sector funds. Um, getting back to what Paul talked about a couple of minutes ago, a sector fund is a bet on an idea. I'll give you an example because it's been a great fund, I think, for 15 or so years. The Vanguard Healthcare Fund, which had a huge run, it hasn't done as well the last couple of years. Um, conversely, for many years, Boeing had the Science and Technology Fund in the VIP, which we used to tell people do not own the Science and Technology Fund. That is a bet on science and technology. Science and technology. Yeah. So sectors, we don't use them. We do use index and index style mutual funds that hold a lot of those stocks. But when you buy a sector, you're overweighting to a part of the economy. You're saying, for example, technology is going to be better than consumers, than consumer goods. So that is, a, that is making a bet on something that we don't think 
you will know how, nor the people that would give you that advice would know. Because it, what it's requiring is a crystal ball to say, here's what's going to look good the next 10 to 15 years. What we try to make clear today is we don't know that. We can only look back 90 years in some cases and say, building a globally diversified portfolio with all of those stocks in it has done this. Um, so It's gamble. No, you said it. Picking anything, picking a stock, picking a sector, picking a group of stocks, every in every case, you're not investing anymore. You're gambling. And if you're going to gamble, you might as well gamble in a way you have high, a higher level of skill or experience or better luck. Blackjack has much better odds. And the angel of the winds people will be happy that I said that. They're waiting right outside They're the door for you. Uh, you're welcome, Angel of the Winds people. Going over here. All right, got to run. So the short answer is we do not use nor recommend sector funds. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, given the advantages of index investing, what are your thoughts or about the pros and cons of market cap-weighted index funds versus some of the other methodologies? Yeah, you're really getting the weeds here a little bit. So the question Interesting is about... Interesting weeds, though. Yeah, the question is about using mutual funds that are market cap weighted versus ones that are not. So market capital, so if you, if you own the S&P 500, which you've all heard of, no doubt, that's 500 stocks, but you own the big companies a lot more than the small ones. In other words, you own, what's the big? You have Apple, a huge chunk of Apple, Apple at the very which, top. Which was great on Friday. You have an alphabet. You have, and I mean, Microsoft. Like seven yep. or so make up 20% of the portfolio, 25% of the portfolio. And remember that the research that we trust says... The, the folks at Dimensional Funds, the academics say, smaller companies and what they term value companies, you know, the things that are out of favor, have made more than the large growth kind of firms. So if you agree with that, which we have, and we're not telling you you have to, which is, this is what we believe, then you wouldn't want to build a market cap weighted portfolio because now you're overweighting to those big, huge companies and you're underweighting to the ones that probably over time will do better than, I hate to say it, Don, Apple, for example. That's okay. You love Apple. so I like the machine. Yeah. You're one of their top contributors, I believe. I do, well, <laughs> only in buying he's, equipment. He's, he's so does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, just to, just to uh, confirm what I think I'm understanding is that those little 6% slices you were talking about, you know, of other uh, sex, asset classes, would counterweight the exactly and by the way that's one and just to give a slight pitch that's one of the things the blueprint really helps you on the very few my of you know blueprint. my future blueprint that you really understand right. and that is how much you have in big companies and how much you have in small companies most of you are way underweighted to small companies because even if you're using the vanguard total world stock index mutual fund which we recommend most of your portfolio is in those big, huge firms, and a very little part is in the smaller and value ones. We build portfolios using dimensional funds. We actually tilt it to the smaller and value ones, and the blueprint helps you understand where you are there that you might not know. Uh, this is a question for Rick. Um, Rick, uh, what I hear a lot is that uh, I'm talking about Medicaid now, mm -hmm. and um, I have a lot of concern about people who have a lot of money and they figure out a way to give it away to their family and friends and everything so they can get on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is Medicaid was always for people who couldn't afford it. Um, so I'm just wondering what kind of impact is that ha having on, you know, all these entitlements and things like that, and is it really something 
that I should be concerned about. Well, I we guess. all need to be concerned about it because it's a huge tax dollar. Mm -hmm. If we pay attention to the national budget and everything, and how much is in the social welfare system? Um, the laws have changed quite a bit from about six, seven years ago, where it was very possible back then for people to be multimillionaires and through various. Um, techniques, uh, artificially impoverished grandma or mom so that they could go on welfare, why the family socked away millions of dollars. The insurance company was a big part of this with all kinds of bogus annuities they would do. One of their scams used to be they'll take a, they'll give a family a $2 million annuity with a $500 a month payout for five years and qualify grandma for Medicaid. Five years later, the annuity pays the $2 million back. And they just watched $2 million and, you know, screwed the taxpayers out of a lot of money. Those are illegal. There are a few attorneys in jail for doing that. Yay. And um, so artificially impoverishing, your, impoverishing yourself today is far more difficult. Where they expanded the what we call the look-back rule from three years to five years. So from the date you apply to Medicaid, they're going to look back five years to see any transfer of assets for less than fair market value, i.e. any gifts to the kids or things of that nature, any attempt to move resources out of the estate. Um, they're much better at it today. That being said, there's a tremendous amount of fraud, waste, and abuse in the system that we all need to continually work at. And, you know, it's a matter of ethics. If I have a client come in here, they have a $5 million estate, and they want to talk to you about Medicaid, I, we shouldn't be having a cock unless they're talking about their mom or something. Medicaid is for people that I say, if your estate's under a million dollars, we should discuss it, especially if you're married. And we just need to discuss it. Sometimes we do some positioning such that you have a little more assets than $2,000 available after you go on Medicaid. So you might be able to buy a new TV or get a new nightgown or something else because the government doesn't provide much. Harlan, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I, you know, that, that's one of the things that gets, there's not a day goes by that I don't worry about long-term care. I've got a lot of experience in it, not just professionally, but both of my parents uh, needed Medicaid. We used the reverse mortgage line of credit to pay for them to stay at home instead of being institutionalized. Mom and dad liked it better, and certainly it was no burden to the taxpayers. If we took a half a trillion of that six and a half trillion and we put it into either long-term care insurance or uh, life insurance with long-term care riders or whatever is recommended by your advisor or used it directly for long-term care, we would wipe out half the problem with Medicaid in this country if just some of that was used. And wow. that is a something wow. that I talk about all the time is why don't we self-insure? 5% of people are insured. It's crazy and it's sad and it's horrible and half the budget is Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security and it's going to get worse with 10,000 people a day for the next 20 years. You're Thank listening you. to a special edition of Talking Real Money Live from Retire Meet in Everett, Washington with our guests Rick Gregorick and Harlan Akala. Paul had to leave. I'm Don McDonald. And, I have to uh, leave, too. Tom got um, to the podium. But I, and I wanted to mention one thing. about long, We don't have anybody here talking today about long-term care. Many of you want to know about this. And here's the reason why. As financial planners, this is an area that has changed dramatically in the last 15 years. There are far fewer companies that are writing these plans. The, the plans that are written are shifting. The way the things that they're getting, that you're getting paid out for have shifted. Um, and if you, if you want to read a great piece, the Wall Street Journal about six months ago wrote a wonderful piece about people that bought long-term care plans, believing they were covered their, the rest of their lives and found out at some point they couldn't afford the premiums. There was, it, it, it's, it's a very tricky area. I'll put it that way. So that's the reason 
every every case is unique, every situation where we have to look at somebody's situation to say it might make sense or it might not make sense here. So what Harlan says is if you have other capital, it's smart to have that to use to pay for those situations because the insurance side is a very shifting landscape. I'll put it that way, Don. Yes, don't just go out and buy a long-term care policy. Uh, you need to make it again a part of the holistic plan and talk to your investment advisor. People ask me, well, what, you know, what kind of a plan to buy? I would never answer that question, but send them to a professional that knows how it fits in. Because you may not picture. need a plan. Well, in some exactly cases, right. you my, don't even need one. My parents never needed one because we used the uh, money in the reverse mortgage to pay to keep them at home. And 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 we're an overinsured bunch of people anyway. The insurance companies, if you notice, some of the wealthiest companies are insurance companies because we insure ourselves against everything and we can't afford to keep insuring ourselves against every eventuality. We have to take responsibility for some of them. Do we have any other questions before we get to our near wrap-up moment here? Uh, I'm going to pass this down because they're very tiny aisles. And you're not. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> question about the reverse mortgage. Um, I think you said that uh, you needed to be in the home six months out of the year. So is it possible to have a reverse mortgage on two homes? <laughs> well, you know, my wife figured that out. She's come to too many of these classes. And uh, you can only have one reverse mortgage at a time. You can have as many as you want, but only one at a time because it has to be your primary residence, not a second home. So I came home from one of these business trips, and I was only home for 10 minutes. And my wife said, you know, I've been kind of thinking when we turn 62, I think I'll divorce you. Now, that kind of catches you. Uh, you know, I'm sure you that just... was not a monetary thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I thought that's just the way it happens. You come home from a business trip, and you know, I thought we had a good marriage after 33 years. But she said, if we get a divorce, I can have the vacation home, a reverse mortgage on the vacation home. You can have the primary residence. That is true. That is the only way that you can have two reverse mortgages. How's that working out, by the way? I, I have four years. I'll let you know. Okay. I haven't seen your wife uh, in four years. Right now. <laughs> uh, so you can only, if you're married, you can only have one reverse mortgage because it's technically six months in a day. It has to be your primary residence. Are you sure it wasn't the fish fry every Friday night? I'm just, I'm wondering. All right. We're going to be able to sneak in one more question before everybody gets their final word in for the day. Any other questions? Do we get them all? All right. I wow. guess we did a good job. All right. So, gentlemen, we have about five or six minutes left. Can I use an outside line to get the answer for this, by the way? No, this isn't really a <laughs> difficult question. Okay. Have a I'm hoping. This event is about retirement, about planning for retirement. What is the best two-minute advice you can give the folks here and listening on KVI to get ready for a great retirement. I'll let Harlan let go Harlan first. start. Uh, get two homes and have your wife live somewhere uh, else. Uh, well, yeah, that's a separate one. That's not the best one, though. Uh, okay, I'm just, uh, I'm just wondering. You know, I don't know. <laughs> that could work. You could do it again three, then. The bottom line is there's a long time ago that I had a couple that at the third meeting with them, I, they said, we have more money than what you thought. We didn't know if we could trust you or not, and now we're going to tell you all the facts. We have coffee cans in the basement, and inside of those coffee cans are some gold coins, and we're thinking that that should be part of our plan. And I said, what do you have in the coffee, uh, how much do you have in the coffee cans? We went down in the basement and we found out they had a million dollars in gold coins wow. in two Folgers coffee cans. You have the address? Uh, <laughs> no, we, we killed them and we he took them. Oh, okay. That's part of the, it was part he part of the ethics. Say, yeah, I got that. Uh, yeah. So 
Uh, why would that not be part of anybody's retirement? You all have gold in your homes that you've put in there. In the basement? Uh, well, it's kind of. It's home equity gold. Oh. Uh, so the issue is, is do not try to do a retirement plan without considering that. I'm not saying everyone here should get a reverse mortgage at 62, but a whole lot more should than what think they should. And to not consider that $6.5 trillion as part of your financial retirement plan, not because of what Fairway thinks, but because of what the financial advisors and the research they've already done said you should consider this at 62 just like you look at Social Security and Medicare and investments and everything else don't try to do that at the end using a reverse mortgage as a loan of last resort is almost always the most difficult way to do it you don't buy the umbrella or the rain poncho when it starts to rain at Disneyland or Disney World you want to make that a part of your plan in the beginning and neglecting that and not looking at it uh, is really a mistake I'm telling you I live near Disney World and they do buy the ponchos and the umbrella is at, at the, the place. Yeah, they do. <laughs> All right, Rick, they up. come out by the thousands. <laughs> Rick, Rick referring up. to his slides here. Well, so. you know, since we didn't get to them, but <laughs> on the back of the slide presentation was my six-step action plan that I think, you know, you came here today. That's a great step. It shows that you're interested. Keep the interest up. You know, overcome planning paralysis we talked about earlier. But, you know, think about the people in your plan. That's an inventory. Think about your goals and your objectives. Schedule your free consultation, of course. Get your legal documents prepared. Blood. They prepare the foundation for you. Develop your professional team of your financial advisors. If a reverse mortgage is part of your stuff, some of you may like long-term care insurance. There's lots of different things going on out there, and not everybody likes everything. And in my law firm, God forbid, we even recommend annuities sometimes, usually in the Medicaid context where we don't have any other options. But there's a lot of tools out there, and the idea is to explore them, figure out what's right for you, you and your family, and then execute that plan, and then keep it current and up to date, and you'll have a much better retirement. You, you went under the two minutes. That's a shock. Well, yeah. What, uh, what happened? He's not feeling well. Were you or kicking him under the table? Yes. So I, you know what? I I'm hear bleeding right here. <laughs> <in the play. laughs> here's 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 most of the most of you. Here's the the problem that we see pretty much every day. You don't know the number, not how much you have to have saved, but you don't know how much you need to make to sustain yourself for the next 25 years. And most people either come in and say, I want to make as much as I can, or I just, I, I'm holding on to it because I'm retired. I'm not going to make any more money. I don't want to lose it. And generally, it's somewhere in between there. Warren Buffett in his newsletter a couple of weeks ago said, why take risk with money you may need? to make money you will not need, which I think it says it all. Because if you build the right portfolio for how much income and how much growth you need, and you do it in a way that fits your emotional makeup, those are the people we see that have a successful retirement because it's one box that is checked. All these other boxes are equally important, by the way. But it's a box that is checked. It's something you don't have to think about every day. You don't care who is president, you don't, the, the world situation, all that stuff comes and goes. You have the right financial situation for yourself and your family, and it's, it's a huge relief for most people. That's what I'd say. And let me just add that the key, and, and we can talk about a hundred other things that are important in retirement, and I'm back here on the headphones to listen to the cues. 
Uh, we can talk about a hundred other things about health care and where do we live in retirement and what are we going to do with our time in retirement and, 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 and the key to all of these, to every single retirement issue and concern and, and want and need we're going to have, the key to all of that is money. I hate to say it, but it's money. And lots of it. And lots of it. You will need money to retire, not just well, but even comfortably. And so my message is more to the people listening than to those of you here, because you all made a commitment. Mm -hmm. You've all made a commitment in your life to invest in your future. But listening to this program right now are thousands of people who have yet to make that commitment. And I don't care if you're 50 years old or 60 years old, it's not too late to make that commitment to build more wealth, to manage that money better, to find the ways to get the income you need, whether it's a reverse mortgage or a bond fund, to, and the younger you can start. And if, if you are a responsible parent or grandparent, the number one thing you can impart to your kids is the need to get started investing. And by the way, we often, Tom and I talk about this all the time. You want to stop giving your kids and your grandkids stuff. Don't give them stuff. Don't give them money. Every year, if you have a kid who has an earned income in your life, they, whether they're working at a 7-Eleven or a McDonald's or they're, they're working on Wall Street and they aren't saving, Every single year for Christmas and birthdays, fund that Roth IRA. The sooner you can start building the wealth, the better off you can be. And I want to thank everybody who participated in Retire Meet North. Great event this year. We really appreciate all of you. We had great speakers. I wish they all could have hung around till the end. And we invite you, of course, to join us next week for our regular edition of Talking Real Money, where we'll do what we always do. Tom and I will sit around and jaw about money. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Have a great afternoon. And all of you in the hall, stick around. We're giving stuff away. Don't go. Talking Real Money. That the information provided on Talking Real Money is for educational and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately, consistently predict the future. So, past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program program is provided as a public service by Vestry, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. That's a wrap. <laughs>